Welcome to the July edition of the Planning Exchange podcast, and thank you to all of you who've downloaded our podcast so far. For a complete list of our podcasts and speakers to date, please visit our website at www.planningexchange.org, where you can find more information about our speakers and information about any upcoming podcasts. My name is Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Our guest speaker today is Jonathan Gardner, who's the director at Cox Architecture. Jono, would you mind giving our listeners a brief overview of your background and experience, please? Oh, thank you, Jess. Peter, um, good to be here. It's uh, our, our, My background really is one of being involved in public architecture over the last 30 years. Um, I've been working based out of Melbourne, but working in a number of different parts, places around Australia and, and, and the sort of the region, um, delivering buildings and master plans and urban design for effectively works of a public nature, be that um, railway stations, stadiums, universities, convention centres and so forth. Um, that's really what we're, uh, we're interested in here in that sense. Uh, less so the, the, the private realm, that's the, you know, the uh, place for other, other people, specialists in that. We really do enjoy the public work. And John, what inspired you to do architecture? In 30 seconds or less. <laughs> Look, in, in a funny sort of way, one answer is I've, I've never imagined doing anything else. Um, but I, I remember a, a seminal moment. I was lucky enough to be taken into Canterbury Cathedral when I was 15. And I was, it was a physiological shock to move into such a dramatic and well-choreographed space. I, I, I look back now at how it was done um, and, and I was at awe at their ability to manipulate emotions through physical form and I realised that actually it was, it's a very much a specific tangible language that I, fascinated me and has ever since. And I believe you met your wife in architecture and... Yes, I did. I met my wife on my uh, very first day at university <laughs> um, and also Patrick Ness, my partner here at Cox uh, on our very first day at university. So it was a pretty, um, in, in retrospect, it was a pretty important day in my life. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and you've, you've extensive experience in, across Australia. What are the experiences that have most shaped you? Look, I think that the, it's, it's one of engagement about how projects are delivered. Um, when a, a society effectively decides to invest resources into a project, it, it comes with social obligations. Um, so if a society decides to spend $50 million on a railway station or uh, $100 million on a hospital, um, what that does is it actually denies other parts of the society those resources. So the checks and balances that it must bring to bear on that are actually fascinating. So the ability to, you know, people call it the political process. It's actually a very human process about how those decisions are made. And you said before that you focus a lot on public architecture. At the start of your career, did you um, commence in residential, sort of, you know, more typical architecture? Look, our, our practice does, but I, I, it's not part of the practice that I'm particularly involved in. Yeah. Um, my so how do you get? How do you um, start up that public architecture stream? Well, it's it's really a case of being involved as an assistant on projects mm. um, and developing skills as a result yeah. of that. Um, I think our greatest attribute is our ability to listen mm. um, and I really learnt that for a project to be successful and there are many, many measures of success, um, you have to listen and learn from people who are engaged mm. in, that, in that area. Um, 
So I think uh, in that sense, my um, least successful residential project was my previous house renovation, which went, <laughs> went for 10 long years and we actually didn't start building. Um, because my Have wife. You now? <laughs> no, no, we, we sold the house. Uh, my wife and I discovered that we actually enjoyed designing what could become <laughs> as much as we wanted to deliver that at a residential in our own sense. So um, I, can't, I can't claim successful foray in the residential architectural world. Um, At least it confirmed for you that you don't want to move into residential. <laughs> well, there are some people who do that, who do beautiful work, yeah. and I applaud them. Yeah. Uh, and it's not, you know... It, not it's not something it's that you're interested in. <laughs> uh, we all go through different stages in our careers. What have you learned in the most recent stage that you didn't know previously? I, I've learnt that... When you travel and practice out of your home city, your worldview is is potentially quite clipped. You um, you work in a particular culture, you speak with people in that culture, you design and deliver buildings in a culture. When you step outside that culture, whether that's a different a city within Australia or a, twin, a city within Southeast Asia um, or, or the Asia Pacific. Um, what you do is you realise some things are the same and some things are different. Mm. And so it actually forces you to refocus on the areas that are explicit about particular places. Mm. So that's really what in the last five years has, has, has actually generated some significant interest in here. Mm. And you, you've talked before we interviewed you, started the interview about the interaction, the dance between developers, architects and government. This, uh, different types of dances for different types of projects? Look, absolutely. Um, the, the, the reality is, again, with a developer, it's, it's private money, if you like, and so there's investments being made. Um, when you get to a, a city scale of investment, it's uh, very institutional, usually, um, and the ideas of the responsibility and the accountabilities back to shareholders as distinct from stakeholders, is quite a critical one. Um, what developers are looking for is certainty within what they can do. Um, the value of any proposition they put forward is really to do with its return and its scale. Um, what government's looking for is uh, an understanding of the city that it's going into. And what architects are doing really is working between the city and the developer in trying to mediate an outcome that's good for the city long term. Each of the players in this dance, as we've talked about, um, are interested in change and what they're interested in making sure that the beneficiaries of that change are shared. Make it sound like such a peaceful thing, this dance, don't we? <laughs> when we're in, in reality... Is it hip-hop or, um, you know, yeah. is it ballroom? <laughs> yeah. Look, look it, it actually... It's, it's generally relatively sensible, we've found. Yeah. Um, there are some... Uh, there are some stories about things that have gone wrong in the past. We've been fortunate enough to never be uh, particularly uh, tied up in, in some of those. There have been commissions that we've resigned from mm. um, due to differences of opinions. Um, but I think that uh, the developers who we engage with in that sense are coming to us for good sound advice, mm. you know, and, it's, and sometimes we have directed them elsewhere mm. if they're after a particular outcome that we don't feel comfortable with philosophically. So one of the um, one of your most um, highly regarded projects, I think, is Adelaide Oval Redevelopment. Um, 
which has been hailed as an outstanding success. What examples did you use in the concept for this development? Can you talk to the spectacle of the event? Yeah, look, the Adelaide Oval is a fascinating project. Yeah. It's sort of seven or eight years in the making. Um, again, it needs to be considered within the context of Adelaide at the time, which was football and cricket had been separate and at war for a generation or two. Um, they had they lived in separate places. Um, the reality is, is that they both needed renewal um, and they really looked for a model that said perhaps we can bring them together, such as other cities do. The MCG is a, is a classic example where football and cricket both generate benefits from shared facilities and we were able to do that in, in Adelaide. The really, um, some of the benefits that came out of it actually, I think, apart from the architecture and the, and the spectacle of the event itself, is it's transformed how people change transport modes in Adelaide. They used to drive to Football Park. It was a relatively miserable experience, an hour in traffic, an hour trying to get out of the car park. Um, now people catch public transport there and they've discovered that public transport is a better option. So the Oval is a beautiful thing. Mm. Um, in terms of its transformation, we, we, were, we were handed a very significant challenge, which was can you redevelop the Adelaide Oval allow it to host 50,000 spectators and still retain what is the most beautiful cricket ground in the world. And, and what we discovered on analysis is that the most beautiful part of the Adelaide Oval was the bits that weren't architecture. Mm. You know, it was the space between the stands. It was a view to the cathedral. It was a connection to the river and the parkland. And in fact, we've responded with a series of pavilions that allow those views to be not only retained but enhanced and focused. Yeah. So the, the hill, the Moreton Bay fix, mm. the old scoreboard, they're, they're enhanced and haven't been detracted from. So in that, in that sense, the Adelaide Oval has really captured what was good about Adelaide, but it's given everyone there a view of a positive and optimistic future. Mm. Was there previously a train station at Adelaide Oval? There was a railway station. Well, there is a, Adelaide's main railway station is directly across the Torrens okay. from the Oval. And so part of the broader project, and as there's a larger riverbank renewal occurring at the moment, is that they have also built a footbridge that connects across the river that connects the Oval to the station and the rest of the city. So the city can now come alive yeah. um, pre and post game. So you were also involved in the North Melbourne Station redevelopment, I believe. Yes. Um, and train stations are typically not places I'd associate with grand architecture, uh, particularly not in Australia, although once upon a time they were, particularly in Europe. Um, can you discuss? Yeah, look, um, each, each of our countries have, have sort of picked up technologies differently mm. over, over our evolution. Um, certainly the great 19th century railway halls mm. uh, in Europe and the United Kingdom were spectacular. Yeah. But they need to be seen within context that they were the airports and internet combined mm. of their era. Mm. Uh, so they received an appropriate amount of investment and, and attention. Um, so the railway stations that are occurring now around the world, we still get the spectacular larger hall and Southern Cross would be one of the examples in Melbourne. But the railway really is about bringing people together into sharing a city's mm. activities. Um, we, we tend to see stations really as public events platforms in their, in their own right, but what they are also is a portal from a suburb into a city. A city cannot afford to build multiple galleries, multiple sports stadiums, multiple hospitals. People need to move. And so what we see as a railway station, you could also think of 
it's actually a portal into all of that. Mm. So the jobs, the education, the employment that come out of mm. central facilities need to be able to be shared by everyone. So railway stations are really critical infrastructure. And so how important do you think the social space is around the train stations as part of the architecture? That's sort of social contract. Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that social contract, it's, in some ways stations are just the a public events platform. Mm. Um, so I think the ability for people to congregate there, they're places where people have a need to go to. So mm -hmm. they're active and they're becoming more and more active. The reality is, is that Melbourne has effectively hit the end of its road transport maximum value. Mm -hmm. We will continue to build more roads, but they're going to get more and more congested. So effectively heavy rail will be the answer to mm -hmm. keeping the arteries of the city flowing over the next generation. Um, so the ability for people to feel secure, to feel safe, to engage, why wouldn't you put the ability to host a community market on, mm. a, on a weekend in the forecourt of a railway station in Epping. Because there's a difference, I Why suppose, between that? congregating and loitering, isn't there? There, there is, that's right, yeah. yeah. But most of what... Um, there are not many public spaces being built in our cities mm -hmm. these days, particularly in the suburbs. Yeah. Most of them are disguised as, as public spaces, but they're, in effect, shopping centres. Yeah. Um, and that comes with a different... You, you are a consumer in a shopping centre. You're not a citizen. Mm. How do we promote the positive contagion or the, the spreading of good ideas? Look, good ideas really is people being able to congregate in enough critical mass and with enough emotional comfort to be able to exchange stuff. It's an exchange of ideas that really generates that. Um, what, what good cities do and have always through history is allow an intensity of thinking people, like-minded thinking people, um, to come together and explore new options. So new ideas are very rarely come out of the artist in the garret. They certainly can be expressed by an artist in a garret, but new ideas generally come out of converse conversations and exchange. So cities allow that to occur, and if we can provide spaces for people to do that, Melbourne, for example, has a classic coffee shop culture that encourages that. It's mm. not an answer, but it's, it's, it's part of the fabric of an answer. Mm. And what do you think the constraints are to smart, innovative development? How do we minimise these threats? Look, that's a, it's a difficult question because what do we mean by smart? Mm. And, and smart is often the coalesce, coalition of ideas that already exist in that sense. I think there's been some really clever new medium density housing developments in Melbourne recently where people have focused on the or challenged the gap between private and public yeah. into semi-private and into semi-public, yeah. I think. You know, historically, a Melbourne housing market has been either private residences or apartments or investor property that people rent for 12 months, and there's no nothing in between. And I think some of the newer developments are looking at shared resources within apartments. Yeah. If people are near a railway station, why invest in garages? Why not put in community gardens or a common library or a shared larger kitchen? Co-housing and those sort of concepts? Well, co-housing is a part of that arrangement. So mm. I think that um, some of them can be generated by um, collaboratives. Some of them can be developer-led and people you know, buy, buy into that arrangement. I think there's actually a role for government to come in and start to do some prototyping mm. in that area and encourage it to occur.
Do you have any good examples that you've seen? Uh, look, there's been a recent one in Brunswick, mm-hmm. um, which picked up a, an architectural award last year, which I think is, is absolutely fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yep, very have you good been there? Great architect. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Do you think uh, that the contemporary architecture in the CBD will stand the test of time? Look, the test of time is an interesting one. Um, we're, we're always very concerned when people start to talk about icons. Mm. Um, my, my view is, is that iconography is a bit of a false god um, and also the quality of a building won't be realised for at least 25 years. You know, anything can look good initially. Um, it's how it gets used over time. One of the reasons why we sometimes look back fondly at the older building stock in our cities is that they were the building stock of its era that survived the test of time. Mm. 19th century Melbourne had a fair degree of shambolic and derelict buildings. Um, they've mostly gone, and we're left with the better ones. Ideally, we would have left some more of the better ones. Um, but I think in terms of the contemporary architecture, I think some of the buildings that we're putting up today will absolutely stand the test of time. Mm. We talk a lot about scale and getting the scale right. Uh, do you think that's about the edges of the building, or how would you how would you define scale? Yeah, building? look, look, scale is an interesting thing, um, it, and there's a number of different layers in which we can look at that. There's sort of city scale, mm-hmm. you know, where you look back at a city and, and its it skyline and so forth. But I think scale really needs to be driven by the pedestrian experience. Yeah. Um, the first twenty five meters of any building frontage in height is is critical, um, and it needs to be. Um, that the most major focus needs to go on that. Um, the potential developments above that can be set back or can be looked at in more of a city scale. But if you don't get the first 25 metres right, yet the building won't be a success. Mm. But it's also about the function and ownership of the building as much as it is about the architecture. Mm. You've, uh, you've said earlier uh, that each project is a prototype. Can you tease that idea out? Yeah, um, well, really what we were trying to get at there was that um, each each site is different. It has different attributes and constraints. Each uh, user group is different and has different needs. And society's needs change over time, and they're quickly changing as we speak. Um, and also the design teams, the construction teams, and the council or authorities teams change too, and their rules change, policies change. Um, so... Every time a building's done, it's effectively never been done before. And it's being partly in the most high-tech fashion in terms of some of the attributes of how we put things together. It's also partly medieval still. So you assemble a team of people who build something and they then disband and move on to something else. Mm. So we don't build 100 or 100,000 of anything. We only ever build one. Mm. That uh, saying, to each age, it's art. Mm. Do you, are you a strong supporter of that? Yeah, look, I think, I think that's the case. It's often very difficult within an age to spot the art um, <laughs> and, and to realise some of the characteristics of your contemporary society. But art, art and artists have really been about questioning the values of, of, of their own culture at the time. They've also been about expressing alternative views of that culture. Um, some have been very proactive, some have been very reactive. Um, but I think each age must produce its art. It will. It's, it, it's endemic. Otherwise, you're just photocopying someone else's attempts in a previous era. Do you, would you say that we learn lessons from the past or are we on a linear path of improvement in city development and architecture? I, I don't think we've got the luxury of, of saying we're on a linear path for improvement. I think we are 
on a linear path globally for urbanisation. You know, we've now we've passed a point of 50% of people living in cities and it's going to rapidly increase. So the pressures on city will get immense. Um, the opportunities will follow. They will also be immense. But I think in terms of the linear path, it's... Uh, it's a, it's a progress, I suspect, that will be for, one step forward, one step sideways, mm. one step forward, one, you know. So it, it won't be a, a linear path in that sense. I think it'll be a circular path. The, the good news is that now there are lessons that can be learnt from multiple cities simultaneously that can be incorporated. So the idea of urban research is really important. Urban research can take lessons out of uh, Brazil, look at what's happened in Paris somewhere in, in Durban and, and start to say, what does that mean for Adelaide? So there, there's things that can really be very exciting. Which gets onto the question of authenticity. Uh, you talked about mm. the, the place before, but how, and authenticity is widely valued, but how do you create that for a city in a globalised society? Well, each, each, each place is unique in that sense. And so each, each city has a different rhythm and a, and a different set of expectations and culture. So you need to spend time on the ground in the place that you're proposing to make an intervention and you need to try and understand it. We, we never work um, as outsiders. We always work with local partners, local collaborators, and we spend a lot of time listening. Um, so when we go into a, a place that we haven't previously worked in, um, we spend a lot of time and effort ensuring that we have advice we are able to be respectful in the advice we give um, with, our, with our partners and the projects are delivered as a collaboration. So in that sense, I think the authenticity is not about importing uh, a response from another area. Um, it's always about looking at lessons learnt from everywhere, including locally, and applying them. And how do you think we encourage citizen ownership or engagement in cities? Look, I think that's a, uh, a really interesting concept. I think that the um, citizen ownership is about feeling secure mm. to be able to exchange your social contract, for want of a better word, yeah. in a public realm. So and that I, probably ties in with what we are talking about before, about um, scale and pedestrian scale as well. Yes, I, I, think, yeah. I think that's right. I think it's also important that we don't treat people as, as consumers, as we mm. were talking about earlier. I think um, some of the issues to do with the potential dislocation socially in some of our suburbs is about the fact that the places to go are privately owned and you're expected to perform in a particular way there as distinct from ones where you're a citizen engaging in a public debate. So I think that the idea of citizen ownership or engagement is important. And again, this also gets back to the idea that at the moment, ownership in Australia is a, uh, a, a fully immersed or a, or a fully unimmersed model. We, we are struggling with the collaborative housing model. We're struggling with collaborative ownership models. Imagine if, for example, we could have a, an apartment building that was designed and owned by a superannuation fund mm. and all of the tenants in it could actually have their own superannuation as part of that fund mm. and their ownership could be partial and they could potentially have some skin in the game of any capital growth. I think what would be most important is not the financial arrangements, but the way that people would then have tenure. Mm. So if you've got tenure with your neighbours over years, you have to be accountable for your behaviour yeah. and you have to be respectful. And you build relationships. Exactly. Mm. So that's how you build. It's an issue of accountability. Mm. If you keep running into someone, you can't treat them badly. Yeah. Yeah. But if you've got a 12-month 
leasing deal. Mm. It's different. Is that, and that's a broader issue, Jono, maybe that people in the past had their associations with their village, with their church, with, mm. you know, their place of work f- and that their parents worked there or whatever, and people didn't move as much. But now we've got this modern society, lots of churn. Yes. How do you, uh, how do you have your place? I think there's a, it, it's not an easy question to answer, no. that one, but just in terms of one of the issues facing, and I'll use Melbourne as an example, but it, it's happening globally, is that we are dislocating our place of live, living, our residence, from our place of work. And the pressure is, is increasing. We're, uh, we're, we're putting dormitory suburbs in areas that are a long way away from any possibility of employment, limited possibilities for education. And as a result, we're bequeathing enormous amounts of traffic, transport, dislocation. So if we wish to get our cities to function again, we need to increase our ways of, of connection. You know, in some ways, city planning can come down to where are the future jobs. Mm. You know, at the moment, Melbourne's jobs in, you know, generator is really the inner city, docklands, inner city, hospitals, work at CBD, moving out in the corridor towards Dandenong as you go through the Monash Medical Centre and University of CSIRO, all the industrial areas and manufacturing and innovation centres there. So you could almost build a, uh, a, a, an extended lozenge of where Melbourne's future jobs will be. Mm. But where are we building our houses? We're building them a long way away. So therefore, the idea of building a community next to your parents, next to um, where you have lived, is, is actually quite challenging. Mm. Churchill said we shape our buildings thereafter, they shape us. Um, was he right? Yes, he was. <laughs> <laughs> Churchill, boy, he's, he's, he's come up with some good ones. Um, look, I think in some respects we regard the cities and our, and our architecture as the stage set and what happens on the stage set is the play. And so what happens is you start, you look at the play, you design the stage set and when the play changes the stage set remains and it continues to influence the play. And so for our sense, we tend to go back to really fundamental issues of what humans need. You know, humans for thousands of years have been gathering around the fireplace, talking with each other, breaking bread, enjoying sunlight. They're actually simple things. We need to get that right um, and then we'll have a resilient space that can change as the play evolves. As an architect, I imagine that technology would be at the forefront of your mind on a lot of projects. Um, what technologies excite you? What, what are the up-and-coming? Look, we're, we're, there's a couple in particular. I think the building information modelling that we're using at the moment, as, as you know, despite the fact I say every project's a prototype, we also <laughs> say... Now, we can build you explain to our listeners what, what that means? That, that Building that, information modelling? Yes. It, it's effectively a building a... Uh, a virtual model of a proposed building prior to it being constructed. So we literally assemble in virtual world a model of how you would build a building. It can be done as a sequence of the construction, so all the roof beams would be Mm -hmm. modelled and put into place. And so you can see very much how the coordination and structure of the building works. You can walk through it, you can take people on the journey within a virtual world prior to it going onto site and being built. So we think that's very, very exciting. I think there's some, there's some really um, uh, useful uh, applications of that in terms of engaging people with what is being proposed mm-hmm. prior to it happening. 
I think the other great technology is 3D printing. Um, we use 3D printers here to look at how we um, build we build models of all of our projects. Um, we do build them in a sort of more traditional manner, but we also do it in 3D printing. But I think 3D printing will have a, an impact way beyond my particular area uh, of interest in that I think it's going to have an enormous impact on manufacturing. In some senses, if you can 3D print something anywhere at any time, what does that mean for the entire traditional manufacturing base? So I think that the old way of assembling product globally will be turned upside down by 3D printing. Mm. I don't quite know what the impact will be at a social level or a cultural level over time, but it will be significant. We were lucky enough to see some of your 3D printing when we were here a few weeks ago. Yes, yes. I struggled to get my mind around how 3D printing actually worked until that point, so that was very good. Well, and if you think that someone like Latrobe, uh, Monash University or other, has recently 3D printed a jet engine, Mm. it's it's not just... Play, play blocks, it's, it's very high-tech high and sophisticated. Mm. And so it means that the traditional manufacturing base that produces that stuff is going to have to evolve fairly rapidly. Mm. And so the whole idea of cheap labour as being a driver for manufacturing will be put into question. Uh, where will the value lie within that continuum of idea to product? Um, it, it, it's a very... It, we, we live in a very fascinating fulcrum of history. Are we going to have buildings that speak to us? Potentially, yes. I think I think in terms of, you know, literally in terms of, you know, speakers and sounds and maybe, um, I think buildings speak to us now in terms of their, their effect to talk to our emotions and our comfort. But I think that um, there will be increasing increasing technologies about smart buildings that can be pre-set for particular services. I think the efficiency gains in energy consumption, water consumption, will be continually improved. You know, I don't think we'll get to a point where it's a revolution. It'll be continuing to evolve. This is a very optimistic... Uh, so you're an optimist for the future? Oh, look, I think it, 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 humanity's always fundamentally been an optimistic race. Um, the... Uh, the, the challenges that we face are real, um, but I also think that our, the, the tools in our armoury to deal with that are real. I think our biggest challenge lies within ourselves, not outside ourselves. So um, you, you, you may be looking at the current political and environmental debate with sort of various views. Um, my, my view is, is that humanity is, has the history of being able to extract itself from these positions. Um, and I think that it will, however, require more grassroots uh, effort because I think a top-down effort is floundering globally. So mm-hmm. I think that actually it'll be communities that will lead globals, not globals will lead communities. And any last thoughts, Jono? Oh, um, any messages to our listeners? Look, I, th- I think be active <laughs> and be involved. Um, we, we often go to public meetings and there's a lot of they or to um, and, in fact, when you look at the people who have made a difference to our cities, they've decided it wasn't they who ought to get involved, it was them. So I think if I, I, um, I, I think the culture of complaint and um, is, is a problem in our, in our current structure. I think what we need... We're all responsible for getting involved and changing it because we can. If you don't want to do that, that's a decision you need to make and stand behind. But I think... Um, when I go to public meetings, I'm, I'm always staggered at the, the spectrum of 
enthusiasm and involvement to the disillusioned and abusive. There's an enormous spectrum mm, yeah, of, of, of citizen involvement and we all need to decide where we want to stand on that spectrum. Mm. All right, Jono. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And just to wrap up, thanks again to all of you who've tuned into this podcast. We trust that Jono has provided you with some interesting insights into the mysterious world of architecture. We look forward to seeing your portfolio of city building contributions continue, Jono. Just a quick reminder to our listeners to also check on our website, www.planningexchange.org, where you'll find further information on the PX podcast series and information about past and future guests. Twenty dollars, sir. That don't sound right.